Good morning. Uh, my name is Aubrey Spears. I'm one of the <coughs> I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a great joy to get to worship our Lord Jesus Christ today. Next Sunday <coughs> is a massive day in the life of our church. It's the start of Advent. Um, we take a rector's discretionary fund offering because it's a fifth Sunday, which is an offering that we take up to help those who have physical and financial needs in the life of our church and in our community. Um, it's also Pledge Sunday for our church. It's a day that we're asking our whole church to fill out these cards indicating their financial commitment to our new church building. What I want to do this morning is I want us to listen together for God's voice on why churches do things like this, why churches build buildings, and why, why we can think about being a part of it and what God can potentially do through something like this for our city and for our own selves. Our church exists for the glory of God and for the good of our city. And we're renovating. We, we've outgrown this, this building. And so we've bought 75 North Mason Street, the old Carter Bank building. And we bought that and we're renovating that for the, for the reason I just said. For God's glory. And for the good of our city. That's what we're going to do in that building. We're going to worship Jesus. And by the grace and mercy and power of God for generations to come, people will worship God there. And not only will they worship God there, but God will transform lives there. That will be a building where our city will find hospitality, care, justice, mercy, and beauty. So this morning, this sermon it's for all of us to tune our hearts toward God as we prepare for next Sunday. Or if you're just a visitor with us, as you think about your own finances and your own relationship to this city, to God, to his glory, to the benefit of, of those around us. Two particular things for us to hold in our hearts as we prepare for next week. Number one. How should we give? And number two, why should we give? Now, how should we give? Well, in these passages that Barbara read to us and that Sam read to us, Exodus chapter 35 and 36 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and Matthew chapter 23, we see that it's quite simple how we should give. We should give voluntarily. Like there, There's no rule for what we need, you need to do. With your money. There's no law about this. There's no um, judgment coming from God if you don't do an exact precise thing. It should be voluntary. It says, as you determine in your own heart. And secondly, it should be generous. This is what the Bible teaches about church building projects and special offerings and things like that. In Exodus chapter 35 and 36, that Barbara read to us, we see the people of Israel are building their church building. They're building the tabernacle. And to do this, they're giving financially. And, and all through those two chapters, this remarkable thing comes up. Over and over, it says, everybody did what he determined in his own heart, according to their own will. 
And over and over it also shows that they gave very precious gifts. Gifts that they couldn't replace. These items that they were giving, there was no like um, Amazon that they could save up and pick up another piece of acacia wood. Like this was treasure that was irreplaceable that they had accumulated as families. These were treasures that they could not replace. And over and over, they're giving their very best. First of all, this giving is generous. It's generous. It's not only generous in the amount, it's generous in the actual items. It's definitely generous in the amount, right? They give so much that Moses has to say, stop, we we don't need any more. In fact, we don't even know what to do with so much. Do you know our church has experienced that before? Do you know that we've had three capital campaigns, one to buy this building, one to renovate it, and another one to renovate it again? Do you know that in, in, in the second, in the first renovation, the second building campaign, we got, we received so much, some of you were here, that we told the church, stop. And even those of you who've made three-year commitments, we're only two years in, don't give any more because we've already covered it all. This kind of stuff does happen. Is it going to happen this time? Ed, you tell me. We, we would love for it to happen this time. But this is generous in the amount, but like I said, it's also generous in the items. And all of us need to pray about, God, what can I give? And God might lead some of us to give something that we can't replace. God might lead some of us to sell an item. And to convert it, to convert it into cash, to, to give to this. God has done that before with his people, and, it, and it's worth it because we build our buildings and then they build us. This is, this is what a church is. But it's also, notice over and over, it's voluntary. This is what you determine in your own heart. Nobody's going to be coming behind you and chastising you. God himself isn't even going to be coming behind you. This, that, all through the Bible, there's basically... Two ways that we give our money to God. One is a tithe. You don't pray about a tithe. That's an act of obedience. God says give 10% of your income to his church, to his kingdom. It was not voluntary. It was off the top. It didn't require prayer. It didn't require joy. It's just a matter of obeying. It's a debt that we repay to God. God says he has given us everything And one of the ways that we repay the incredible gift of his son to us and his kingdom to us is by taking 10% of our finances, which is very close to our heart. So close to our heart that if I came up to you and said, you have to do this with your money, and I just started looking around your bank account, you would get really ticked off, right? Because that's really private. It's really close. It's, It's your thing. And God says the way we repay that debt is by taking one of the most powerful precious things in our life that we feel most deeply connected to, the money we've earned, and right off the top, we give 10% to him. But this thing that's going on in Exodus 35 and in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, that's not the tithe. It's a free will offering. It's a gift. It's over and above the 10%. And this, God cares most that you make a choice and you do it joyfully. That's what he expects of us. The free will offering is the heart responding to the Father who has been so gracious. So the tithe was obedience. The free will offering was a demonstration of love and joy and worship. You could say the Israelites tithed because God told them they had to, but they gave above and beyond that because they wanted to. 
And when we turn to the New Testament, the same thing lives. In Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus clearly says, you need to tithe. Um, But he says, those of you who are super legalistic about you give your tithe, but you don't do justice and mercy, you should tithe and do that. That doesn't let you off of the other works. Jesus never once, never once suggested that we're no longer bound by the tithe. Just like he never said we're no longer bound by the rule, don't murder or don't lie or don't steal. It's right up there with all of that. But then the New Testament, the Christians, they pick up the same language, the free will offering, that the Old Testament had. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, over and over, it's quoting Exodus 35 and 36. Each one determined in his own heart what he's going to do. Why? Because this is a separate project. There's a group of people who, because of famine, they're, they can't live, they can't eat. And so Paul doesn't use the tithe language. He doesn't say, you have to give. He picks up the free will offering language and says, determine in your own heart. This is one of those moments in life outside of the tithe where the church needs to respond with kindness and self-determination and voluntarily and all of that. Notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly and not under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And then chapter 8, verse 3, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. So I encourage you to do two things this week. Determine of your own free will what you will give. And do it generously. All right, now, that's how we should give. We should give voluntarily to this project. um, And we should give generously. Now, why should we give? Why should we do this? Why should we take time this week in our busy, anxiety-filled lives to make these kind of decisions and to give so generously? Why in the world should any of us who we're going through kind of the same thing that the Corinthians are going, that the Macedonians are going through. In chapter 8, right at the beginning there, he's telling the Corinthians about the church in Macedonia. He says, they are in a severe test of affliction and their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in wealth of generosity. That's our church this year. We are definitely in a season of affliction as a church. And we're also living in an economically fragile moment. We're just like these guys. So this week, as you're thinking about, but why should you do this? I think there are three reasons that we should all give generously, that we should choose to do this. Number one, our gifts will bring God glory. That's one of the things you need to think about this week. Number two, it will benefit our city. And number three, it will benefit you and me. Those of us who give, it will benefit us. So the first one, it will bring God glory. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Notice verses 1, starting in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, that about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe affliction severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. Now, that's us. That's our church right now. We are definitely in a season of affliction, and we are experiencing economic fragility and all that. Now, drop down to chapter 9, verse 10. 
He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the righteous, the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, it is overflowing in many thanks to God. We're not only going to build a building, but this action is going to overflow into God's glory. By their approval of the service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surprising grace of God upon you, thanks be to God. Do you see how the whole thing, it kind of overflows into God receiving glory. This building we are renovating will be a place where we worship Jesus Christ. That's what we're putting our money into. On Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we are going to gather in that building. And not just us, but generations to come. In our weddings, in our funerals, we will gather in that building. And in our pain and in our joy, we will in that building give glory to God. For years and decades to come, this building will be dedicated, set apart For God's glory through our prayers and praises, our songs and our sermons through art and the confessions of sin and the the pronouncements of forgiveness through children and teenagers learning to delight in the will of God and walk in his ways through generous gifts flowing out of that building to the poor and the marginalized, through labor and advocacy for justice and mercy, through the amazing gift of family that God forges by his spirit in churches so that all find love and community. The list goes on and on as you consider your commitment to help build this building. Remember, it is primarily and ultimately an investment in God's glorifying work in our city. Secondly, this building and your gifts to purchase it and renovate it will be a benefit to our city, not just to God, but to our city. Think about what's going on in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. It's through a church that God is feeding the hungry that the state is not taking care of. It's through a church that's been formed into the kind of people who say, where are the brokennesses? We will disadvantage ourselves to advantage those who are hurting. It's the church in Macedonia and the church in Corinth. These churches are blessing outside their walls. Churches are good for cities because Christian churches worship the Lord Jesus Christ, who is for the world. And week after week, as we gather and gaze on him, we become more and more for the world. Notice how the very thing I'm talking about this morning, the act of giving, the very thing we're seeing in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, notice how there is a culture of radical philanthropy in the church. Now, all studies indicate that in America, most people do not go into philanthropic mode giving away large sums of money until they're very rich. But studies show that Christians become philanthropic when they're poor. Their mindset of philanthropy starts far sooner in the church. Why? Because we have passages like this all up in our grill all the time telling us that we need to be generous. 
Christians are philanthropic before they accumulate significant wealth. There is a willingness among Christians who are imitating Jesus to to limit our lifestyle and our consumption. Christians should never live at the maximum level their income empowers them to. Don't compare yourself to the poorest of the poor, the richest of the rich, when you look at your house and your car and your spending habits. What you need to do is say, for people who make my level of income, do I live at a lower standard than my economic peer set? That's how Christians relate to money. They live lower than they could otherwise. Now, I'm not saying that Christians are perfect at this, but there is significant data that Christians have been acting like the Macedonians, acting like the Israelites for millennia. This is how we behave. As we inhabit this new building with our prayers and our praises, our worship and our community, we will continue to be a school of love, a place where all of us and generations to come will be transformed into good citizens, into the kinds of citizens who bless the city with generous gifts of their time and their resources, people who are radically generous. This has been documented recently by a research project that drew together the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Toronto and Ryerson University. And these universities in their sociology departments, they work to map and measure cities based on their social infrastructure. And they they wanted to find out, are churches wasted spaces in retail districts, in downtown? And what they were able to quantify is that for every $1 of a church's budget, cities are relieved of $4.77 in social services. This is becoming known as the halo effect. For every dollar of a church's budget, studies indicate there is a measurable $5 relief on the social services of a city. Our church's budget is roughly $700,000. That means next year, we will have a $3.5 million impact on our city's budget. Our church will relieve our city of $3.5 million of social services. Regardless of the exact specifics of all this, what I'm saying is that simply on an economic level, churches are good for cities. Why? Because churches are places where people become generous, where they care for their neighbors, where they give sacrificially, not just at the grocery store, a dollar because you add it on to your bill, but real sacrificial day in, day out, week in, week out giving. Now, this economic measure that several universities have quantified and proven, this is is really an indicator of a much more serious impact churches have on their cities. Look on the front of your worship guide. This incredible verse that's been shaping us over the last month or so. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. The church is a city with its lights on. At night. Now, to pull back the curtain on this amazing metaphor, I want to tell you a story. A story that a friend of mine uh, wrote, created, Greg Thompson, former pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church. I've told this story before, but it has 
It's something we need to hear again. I want you to imagine a woman that lived somewhere between the 2nd century and the 16th century. Very broad period of history, but just pick your favorite moment in there out. And let's say she lived somewhere, generally speaking, in the region of the Mediterranean. Okay, so she could live as far south as northern Africa, if that's where you want to go with your imagination, as far east as modern Iraq. She could live as far north as northern France or even England or Scotland. She could live as far west as modern Spain. Now, I want you to imagine that she, um, out of some terrible necessity, is obliged to make her way on a journey across the remoteness of this part of the world. So she leaves whatever shelter is hers. She steps out into the dark, into this restless wind, and I want you to see her in your imagination. Now, as she steps onto her path and she bends her long and lonely course toward whatever town or village that, 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 help, that holds her hopes, in all likelihood, what she would be doing every day is scanning the horizon for one thing. Do you know what she's going to be looking for? A church. A woman in the Mediterranean between the 2nd and 16th century who's in this vulnerable position would on her long journey daily be looking for a church. Sometimes these churches were huge cathedrals rising up with stone and filled with light. Sometimes they were small little parishes tucked away on roads um, that some of you have seen, these little churches and filled with warmth. And sometimes they were monasteries tucked behind walls and filled with song. But no matter which kind of church it was, all of these churches shared one thing in common. It was a deep sense that in the world, they were to be the faithful presence of love. And this is why this woman would look for a church. Because of all things she could know about the church, the one thing she would certainly know, and most people did know, was that the church was a place whose very purpose was to be light in the darkness, to be rest for the restless. Its purpose was to be the presence of love in the absences of the world. In fact, most of these churches had manuals, rule books, for how they were to carry out this work. They had these actual rule books for what to do when a traveler came and showed up on their doorstep. I'll read one. This comes from the Benedictine rules. This rule book was written in the 6th century. Quote, all guests to present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ, for he himself will say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And once a guest has been announced, the superior and the brothers or sisters are to meet with him with all the courtesy of love. The abbot shall pour water on the hands of the guest, and the abbot with the entire community shall wash their feet. Great care and concern are to be shown in receiving poor people and pilgrims, because in them is particularly is Christ received. This was the way church, this was a rule book for a local church. So that's why a woman setting out on a long journey would scan the horizon for a church, because that's what she could find. Now, isn't that amazing? 
This, this is an amazing passage from an amazing document, and there are so many others like it, and all of them are bearing witness to the conviction that the church's vocation is to be present in the absences of the world, to be the faithful presence of love in their culture. Now just imagine what this woman might have been missing and hundreds and thousands of men and women and children who set out on journeys during those centuries. Some of them were hungry, driven by the absence of food. Others were diseased, driven by the absence of care. Some exploited, driven by the absence of justice. And some of them were sinners, driven by the absence of grace. And can you see these people making their way and looking for the church and in finding a church... What would they find? I love this. On the one hand, they would find personal care. This careful attention to the most intimate needs that human beings have. I want you to think about this. Because in our lighted windows, they find consolation of knowing they're not alone. And in our open doors... They find the presence and the sound of welcome. And in our embrace, they find the return of their dignity. And in our kitchens, they find fullness and joy. Think about it. Warm bread, stew, the gladness of wine. Inside our walls, inside our rooms, they find rest. And in our farewells, they find warmer clothes and heavier bags and the benedictions of God for their ongoing journeys. That's what they find. They find personal care, but they also find public concern. And this is important to understand because when they came to churches, what they found were communities of men and women who were concerned not just for individual pilgrims showing up. They were concerned about their cities. It's the church in the past century who invented public education. It's the church that invented hospitals. It's the church that invented modern um, health care insurance. What, this is, the church invented these things by being for the good of their city. You see, the church gives not only personal care, but public concern. And I want you to try to see our brothers and sisters giving themselves in kitchen and chapel and courtroom and in court square to this work of being a presence of love. And it plays out all day. Every, this is what it means for a church to be a city on a hill. We are a school of love. And, and, and the love that we have is not just for ourselves. It is this love that we learn. It's cultivated in our rich, thick community life and commitment to our neighbors. Hospitality is the public side of love. Because when we accept Jesus' invitation into his love, the love that he has for the Father and the Father for him, when we open our lives to that love, it will shape us into becoming generous, other-oriented, outwardly focused kinds of people. And as we grow in that love, it overflows. This church building will be for the benefit of our city, for God willing, over a century to come. That's what we're investing in. Finally, and this just very quickly, this building and your gifts to purchase and renovate it will benefit you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 10. Paul says bluntly, and in this matter I give you my judgment. It benefits you. What? This generous free will giving. And in chapter 9, verse 8. 
God is able to make all grace abound to you. May the Lord bless us. I want to encourage you this week to, at some point, read through on your own Exodus 35 and 36 and 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 and sit with these stories of our family history and reflect on how will you be a part of this thing we're doing. This is the, one of the greatest investments any of us have to make. An investment in a church that will, it's a thing we're going to build, but then like Winston Churchill said about our cities, then it's going to build us. And it's for God's glory and for our benefit and for the good of this city. Let's pray.